0: How many of you have had the opportunity ever to travel overseas? Have you ever had the opportunity to go outside of this country? Okay, not a whole lot in here, but some. I'm sure you've experienced um, culture shock. Have you ever gone to another culture, another country, and just been a little bit surprised, maybe even caught off guard by the culture that's surrounding you? Um, And when you get into another culture there's always the challenge of communication or connecting with or engaging with that culture evans just got back from a very different culture in russia and and part of the barrier is just a, a language barrier just simply the language barrier itself is sometimes a challenge to overcome we've got a couple of kiddos in our home right now that don't speak any english they're staying with us for a few days and luckily I- Spanish, And so that enables the barrier to be overcome, but Heather doesn't speak Spanish, so she has a harder time overcoming barriers with them than, than I do. So some of it's just the language barrier, but then there's just different things about different cultures that if we're going to engage that culture, we're going to have to deal with the barriers. We're going to have to build some bridges in order to be able to connect with the culture. Even when we lived overseas, we lived in, in uh, Costa Rica for a year, and then we lived in Ecuador, and the cultures in Costa Rica and Ecuador were different, even though they spoke the same language. There were certain things about Ecuador that were different than Costa Rica that we had to learn. And the reason I bring this uh, as a, a, a point of introduction this morning is simply that this text here today, this passage that we're going to look at today, has been used and it has been abused by both sides of the view of, or, or, of, of trying to decide how it is that we engage culture, secular culture, how do we connect with how do we engage how do we, how do we uh, operate within this pagan culture that we that we live in, how, how are we to operate in this world we live in and, and there are some who will use this text to call for um, very much a very contextualized, almost caving in of our values in order, in order to just fit in with the culture. And they'll, they'll look at Paul here and they'll, they'll say, Paul is, is doing that here, so we should do it too. And there's others that look at what Paul says here says, no, it's the exact opposite. Paul's totally separating himself from the culture and is having nothing to do with it. And I believe that both views of this text are an abuse of the text. And actually we find a very interesting balance here and a challenge in this text. In regards to how do we operate in within and how do we communicate with a pagan culture now just to kind of help us maybe lighten us up a little bit this morning and we think about communication i want to show you a funny video some of you have probably seen it before because i posted it on my facebook but jordan go ahead and bring up uh this video for me there can you get your mouse over there to the play button Can you find your mouse for me? You may not be able to. We'll see if we can if we can play it or not. There is the mouse. Aha. All right. There we go. Das hier ist mein Sektor. Das hier ist das
1: wichtigste Gerät des Küstenwächters. Das Gerät, das Gerät. Überlebensradar. Think. Hello. This is the German Coast Guard.
2: We are sinking. We're sinking. What are you thinking about? Oh.
0: Did y'all catch that? All right. In reality, we live in the middle of a lost, sinking dying culture and there is the necessity that believers be apart from that culture at the same time we're in the culture and we are to be change agents in that commercial in that culture so like this silly commercial here we've got to know how to communicate and engage a lost dying sinking culture That even if they don't realize it, they're screaming out like these people at the Areopagus in this passage here. They're screaming out for God and they don't even realize it. They've got an altar to the unknown God. Why? Because as Augustine said, there is a a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that screams out for the one true God. And that these idols don't satisfy that. Nothing else in the world satisfies that. Only God, the one true maker of the universe, can satisfy that longing of the heart. And these guys, these stoic philosophers and these Epicurean philosophers, they don't even realize that. And Paul's here to make known what they don't know. He's here to make known the unknown God to these people. But he has to do it in a very wise and yet very bold way. And so I want us to look at the text today and let's find, if we can, a balance here. There's so many things in life that require balance. Um, a lot of times we come to the Scriptures and, and, and we read principles in the Scriptures and we have to find out how do we, how do we follow those scriptural principles and balance them in, in this world we live in. And so we've got uh, to find this balance here that Paul finds in this passage of Scripture, there seems to be two directions, two polar opposites that pull on all believers and pull on all churches today, and, and really all believers and all churches throughout history. And one one is to be isolationist, sectarian, separatist, to pull away, to 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 pull away from the culture totally, to, to put ourselves into a bubble, to find a safe Christian subculture, or in many cases a safe Christian subculture within a Christian subculture within a Christian subculture because we don't like what these Christians are doing and these Christians are doing. So we find a way to separate ourselves from the world. And that's a pull and it's a tendency and there are times that we are called, yes, to separate. No. Set apart. Stand apart. The other polar opposite of that are the syncretists who, who, who go too far and they, they conform to the world. And and uh, they capitulate to the culture to the point that there's no distinction anymore between what's holy and what's profane, between what's true and between what's false, between what's godly and between what's worldly. Sectarians can go too far into false comforts of separatism, false comforts of separation by living an external type of Christianity that tries to avoid sin instead of killing it. You know, Christians are not called to just avoid sin. You're called to kill your sin. And if all you've done is lived a life where you've enabled yourself and your family to avoid it, but you haven't killed it, guess what? You're in for a load of trouble down the road. Parents, train your children to murder sin. Destroy it in their life. Train them to do that. Don't just train them to avoid it. Because there'll come a day when you're not standing there with those protective arms, and they're going to try it out, and they're going to fall. Fall teach them, train them to kill sin. And, and one of the dangers of separatism and living in a bubble is that we, we tend to think we're okay because we've avoided everything and we haven't taught ourselves to kill sin. The other danger, though, by going too far into trying to communicate or engage with the culture is that we dilute the gospel to the point that it's no longer the gospel and it becomes some sort of man-centered spirituality that fits into the pantheon of American religions without offending anybody. Let's just scoot it in there. We'll just call it the unknown God without actually telling you that you're worshiping idols. You see, Paul, if you look at his speech here in a little bit, he doesn't just say, hey, by the way, I know who the unknown God is. Here he is. All right. He says, I know who the unknown God is. Oh, and by the way, you're fools. Everything you're worshiping is false. Here's the one true God. And so finding that balance is difficult. Missiologist Andrew Wall puts it another way. He, he refers to the seemingly opposite tendencies in the church when it comes to being missionaries in this world. He talks about the indigenizing principle. This would be like the missionaries who went to China. Hudson Taylor and others who would go to China and they would adopt the culture that they were going into. They would begin to wear the clothes of the culture but without giving into the sinful aspects of the culture. But they would connect, they would engage with, they would incorporate Chinese music into what they were doing and they they would become indigenous to the culture. That's the indigenizing principle. Becoming relevant to that culture. Then there's the pilgrim principle. This would be like the pilgrims on the Mayflower. They were getting away from the world, getting on a boat and getting as far away as they can from the world. And setting up their own society separate from the world. And we are called to do that as well. We are called to engage our culture and to be able to communicate with our culture in a relevant way. So as to challenge them with the gospel truth. Not to say you're okay where you're at. But at the same time, we are called to be pilgrims in this world. We are aliens. We are from another city. We are from the city of God. We are not part of this world. So how do we find this balance? And this has always been the tug in the church. And my prayer has been from the moment we started Harbins is to be a church where we can find that balance. And even be a church where there's freedom within the body to disagree on different ways that we find that balance. In your home as opposed to my home. But to try to aim for biblical balance. And this text today, I've been looking forward to getting to it. Because I believe we see a balance in this text. Let me see if I can illustrate this for the kids in some sort of way. Because I always try to illustrate it for the kids in some sort. Let's see if I've got a volunteer out there over here on the end. All right, come on up here. All right, what is in this jar here? You can hold it. What's in the jar? They have any idea? Any clue? They th- these two things don't mix. Something and something doesn't mix. It's oil. Oil, good and water. Oil and water don't mix, okay? So that's, I want you to kind of hold that up there so everyone can see it. You see they've got the oil sitting there on the top and the water down here on the bottom. That's kind of the picture of Christians in the world. We are not of this world. We are different. We've been made new. We are like the oil up here. Let's say the world's represented by the water. Christians are represented by the oil. We are different, We have been made new. We are new creations. That's what the Bible says. You're no longer part of this world. So we have been set apart. But at the same time, we've been called to a mission. And we've been called to engage our culture. And what I'm afraid of, and stay right there because I'm going to have you do something here in a second. What I'm afraid of is our tendency to pull away and to separate leaves the world untouched by our Christian witness so often. And we are called, I believe... To make a difference in this world and to get out there and change the world. So I want you to shake that up really, really hard. Take both hands and shake it up really hard. Harder. There you go. Okay, let's look at it. Harder. I'm just doing that just for the fun of it. You've done a pretty good job, right? Okay, trying to give you a workout. All right, now, look at it. All of a sudden, this jar looks different. It still has the same two things in it. As a matter of fact, if you look closely, you see all these little bubbles in there of oil floating around. But the look of this jaw has changed now because the oil up here at the top has gone into the water and changed the way it looks. The reason America was founded on Christian principles is because we had people that were willing to put their Christian beliefs into action in the public arena and change the culture. And the more Christians pull away and separate, I know you don't have to stand here while I preach. Go sit down. Thank you very much. When we pull away and separate, the more we're just going to leave this world to go on its own path to hell. So I believe there's a balance. It's a challenge to find that balance. It really, really is. It really is. But there is a balance. So let's look this morning at this text. We are not going to get all the way through the text today. So we will spend a fourth week in Acts chapter 17 uh, next week. We'll finish this text next week. I will go as far as I can in it today, but I guarantee you we will not finish it. I mentioned everything that I mentioned this morning because I believe that this passage deals with this very thing. Let's recap a little bit. We're on the second missionary journey now. We're, we're going through Acts verse by verse. Okay, We're not doing a special Christmas series this year. We're just going to continue to go through Acts verse. By verse, and we've been in Acts chapter 17, which is part of the second missionary journey. You remember Paul and Silas set out from um, um, where did they set out from? No, 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 they set out from before Philippi, his home. Um, anyway, they set out for the second missionary journey from their home church. Thank you, Antioch. Not Antioch of, Antioch of Syria, not Antioch of Pisidia. So they head out from Antioch of Syria and they head out and they go and they revisit a bunch of the churches that they had already established, including the church in Antioch of Pisidia, okay? And they go and visit these churches. Then they try to go into Bithynia and Asia. And the Holy Spirit shuts them down and says, you can't go there. Now, while they were on their way, they picked up another missionary partner, a guy by the name of Timothy, who becomes a very important team member on Paul's team. So that God shuts the doors. They can't go to Bithynia. They can't go to Asia. They end up going to Macedonia because God calls them over to Macedonia to a city called Philippi. Another team member joins a, a doctor by the name of Luke at this point. In Philippi, you know the story, Lydia and her household is saved. There's a slave girl that gets set free from a demon, but that sets off a, ch- a chain, a series of, of chain reaction events that gets Paul and Silas put in jail. The jailer is converted after they are miraculously set free in, a, in an earthquake. And so that's what all happens in Philippi. They leave Philippi. The city officials ask them to leave Philippi. They go to Thessalonica where there's conversions, but there's also a riot. Then they go to Berea where there's also conversions and there's another riot because the mobs keep getting stirred up by these these Jews who do not like Paul's message and they follow him. They're like stalkers. They're following Paul from town to town, messing up, trying to mess up the missionary work that he's doing. So at this point, at the end of where Demer left off last week, Paul is shipped off to Athens for his own safety. So we pick it up there in verse 16. Now while... Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Athens wasn't apparently part of their original plan, but he ends up in Athens. And apparently it was probably going to be about a three-week wait for for Timothy and for Silas to get there. Luke stayed behind in Philippi. So um, he's in Athens, but he gets stirred up while he's in Athens as he begins to look around at the city. Now let's talk a little bit about Athens. Athens is still considered by many today to be the greatest city That mankind has ever built. In its zenith, its heyday was reached between 495 and 425 B.C. It became known as the world's center for art, philosophy, architecture, rhetoric, literature, and science. It attracted all the intellectuals from all over the world. It became the birthplace of democracy. Out of it would come guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle... Uh, Epicurus, Zeno, famous philosophers. It was conquered in 338 BC by a guy by the name of Philip II from Macedonia. And his son, a guy by the name of Alexander, would spread the Greek culture all over the world. Alexander the Great. The Greek culture would spread all over the known world as Alexander conquered it. And Rome would conquer Greece in 146 BC. And the Romans loved everything Greek, so they continued to spread ...the Greek culture, they adopted it into their own culture... ...and they allowed Greece, they allowed Athens that is, to govern itself. And it remained governed, self-governed in Paul's day. And it also remained the cultural and intellectual center of the world. Now by this time it had lost a lot of its former glory... ...and it had been replaced by Corinth as the most important commercial city of the region... ...but it was still the place where all the intellectuals went. Okay... So it's a place that all the college professors would go, if you will, to debate, to talk about stuff. The dominant philosophies of Paul's day were two. uh, Really, there were three. There were the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the Cynics. But only two are mentioned in this text, so we'll look at those real quick. Here's what the Epicureans believed. The Epicureans believed that pleasure is the chief end of all man. It's the chief end of man, is pleasure. They sought freedom from pain. Freedom from disturbing passions, freedom from superstitions and freedom from any anxiety about death. They did not deny the existence of God, but they were practical atheists in the fact that they believed that, that God had no interest in the affairs of men. So basically they were deists. They were pure materialists. They didn't believe in any, any afterlife. They believed this life is all there is. What you have is what you have is what you've got, and nothing else. After this life, it's all over. Here was their motto. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't, don't do it. Doesn't sound like Epicureanism has ever died off, does it? Because it's still the prevailing. It's the prevailing mentality of our day. If it feels good, do it. Have it your way. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't, don't. The Stoics, they believed that man needed to live in harmony with nature. They emphasized man's rational ability and individual self-sufficiency. They believed in an afterlife, but a spiritual disembodied afterlife where you just sort of merged into the world. They were pantheists. They believed that everything is God. They also believed in strict fatalism and that all of life was determined by fate. Nothing you could do about it. It's just fate. These were the Stoics. Boy, sounds like we got a lot of Stoics in the world as well. Live in harmony with nature. Become one with the world. Everything's God. You see, these philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff, just rehashed. You see, Satan's not very creative. He only has like four or five ideas, and he just repackages them for every culture. Try this, try this, try this. It's the same thing from the beginning of the world. It's been the same stuff over and over. There's nothing new under the sun. And so these were the prevailing philosophies of the day, and they are the prevailing philosophies of our day. And that's why this is relevant, this text is relevant to us today. This Athenian culture, this pagan, polytheistic, religiously plural, man-centered culture, it upset Paul greatly. In verse 16 it says, His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. One Roman satirist, a guy by the name of Petronius, He said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. There were these grand temples and lots of statues dedicated to every god imaginable. It was a giant melting pot of deities, all sorts of shapes and sizes. It was a marketplace of religious figures. It was not too far from our spiritually diverse, what we call religiously pluralistic society that we live in today. Athens didn't want to leave any deity out, so they put their own altar for an unknown god in there. This was a pagan and God-ignorant culture, much like ours today. So here's the first thing I want us to take from our text this morning. The first point in your notes is simply this. Well, first of all, the title of the, let's see if they can get my thing working back there. The title of our message today is simply engaging a culture that doesn't know God. And here's your first point. Our pagan, God-ignoring culture should shake us out of our lethargy. And into action causing us to become bold and wise counter-cultural agents of change. I know that's a mouthful. But that's as simple as I could get it. Our pagan, God-ignoring culture, which is the same as the Athenian pagan, God-ignoring culture. Our pagan, God-ignoring culture should shake us out of our lethargy and into action. In other words, we should be like Paul. Stirred up when we see the world the way it is. Causing us to become bold and wise countercultural agents of change. So I challenge us to become counterculturally relevant. Two things we need. First of all, number one, we need the boldness to confront our culture instead of conceding defeat. Let's play some offense, doggone it. What's the saying in football? The best defense is a good offense, or is it the other way around? Well, in this case, the best defense is a good offense. You see, I think my tendency, you may be different than me, but my tendency is to get very stirred up, just like Paul did, about our culture. When I hear someone insulting God, and all these idols were an insult to God. Idolatry is a mockery of God. It makes a mockery of who He is. You can't make an image of God. And it makes a mockery of Him when you make an image of God. And so when I hear our culture today practice its own forms of idolatry, and I hear people insult God and make fun of Jesus or whatever else... Boy, it stirs me up. But you know what my tendency is? I'm just going to turn it over to the fish and ignore the culture and be alone and just close myself off. Instead of saying, how can God use me and my family to change this culture? What's God calling me to? And instead, I have a tendency to want to shut my doors and say, come, Jesus, soon. You see, Paul was stirred up, and what does he do? He goes on offense. I think we need to guard ourselves against a separationism that is a reaction to the culture, a fearful reaction to the culture. If you're separating yourself from something the culture participates in in order to be holy and to grow in your love for God, that's great, but if you're separating yourself from something in the culture simply because you fear it, And a bunch of other Christians and articles you've read have told you to fear it, so you're going to push it away. That's a different thing. What's our motives? Why are we separating? What are we doing here? So Paul goes out into the marketplace. He goes out into the culture and begins to play some offense. This requires, like I said, great wisdom and great discernment and a lot of hard work. And it directly pertains to how we train our children. It directly pertains to how we train our children. And I run the risk of offending some of you this morning. Because I believe that sometimes we become way too separationist with our own children. We shelter them so much that we make them ill-prepared to confront the culture. On the other end of the stick, though... There are non-discerning parents who expose their kids to so much of the culture that they haven't taught them that there is a difference that we are to make in the world and we are to be different at the same time. And so it requires gospel balance. This is one of my favorite passages about parenting. It's Psalm 127. It's one of my favorite passages about parenting. It says, Behold, your children are, you probably know the verse, your children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a blessing, they're a gift. Your children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. And then he uses this strange analogy. He goes, in verse 4 he says, They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Your children have been given to you as offensive weapons against Satan and his culture. And you as parents are to keep them in that quiver, train them up, make them strong, put them in your bow and arrow, pull it back, shoot them into the culture. How do you do that? That's the hard part. How do we do that? How do we teach our kids to engage the culture and confront it and not concede defeat? It's very, very challenging. I'm not going to give you, oh, here's 10 points to doing this. Because it's up to each parent to prayerfully, biblically seek, how do I do this in my life? But I do believe, and I've seen it so many times, I've seen wimpy arrows emerge from overprotective, sheltered quivers. And when they got shot into the world, not only did they fail to do any damage to the enemy, they got crushed. They got crushed. Because they lived in a totally sheltered world. I've given the illustration a thousand times, but, but Heather and I grew up both overseas, both in Christian schools. He- Heather in a much more sheltered, much more restrictive school than I grew up in, but both were Christian schools. Now, I thought my school was restrictive, but hers was a lot more. And, and, and we can just go Look at Case by case by case of friends And and it doesn't mean everybody in her school Turned out bad but there were so many cases of those Arrows when they went to college They got crushed Because they were Living in a quiver that wasn't Preparing them to engage The culture It was teaching them to fear it And so they were taught to fear it Taught to fear it, taught to fear it They got in it and they said I want to try it And they got crushed And this is a challenge for all parents to find, how do we do this? Where is this balance? I cannot tell you how to do this. All I can tell you is that I think we should be like Paul, not fearing and hiding away from the culture, but going out, letting our spirit be provoked into action. When it says he was provoked, it says he was agitated. In other words, Paul was ticked. Does our culture tick you off? It makes me mad sometimes. It should. When you hear someone insult God, does that make you mad? How do you react? Do you hide away or do you go on offense? So Paul is offended here. He's offended because idolatry is a thievery of the glory of God. And Paul will not sit back and let his God be pillaged in such a way. So he goes out. It says in verse 17, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So, uh, the, the, the verse 17 starts with the word so. Why did he go reason? Why did he talk in the marketplace? Why did he, he did these things because his spirit was provoked. So his spirit provoked him into what? Evangelism. The world should provoke us into evangelism. Into outward proclamation of God's truth of his word of the gospel. He's out, he's in two places. He's in the synagogue every week preaching the truth. So in a more formal setting, like this right here, he's actually proclaiming truth. He's not backing down. He knows his word's going to offend some of the Jews that are there. He knows it's going to offend some of the God-fearers who are there. But he's going to proclaim the truth in a formal setting. And I think we're all good with that. But then it says he was also in the marketplace. Day by day in the marketplace. Reasoning. Now, this word reasoning, it does... The text, the Greek text is diagolete, which is where we get the word dialogue from. And so sometimes people look at that and say, well, he's just having a conversation. Well, he is, but the, the text here insinuates that he's having persuasive dialogue. Okay? Persuasive dialogue in Paul's mouth, I'm sure, was pretty bold. It was persuasive dialogue. Not just, you tell me about what you believe and I'll tell you what I believe in. Okay, we'll both go our merry own way. You tell me what you you believe in, I'll tell you what I believe in. And now I'm going to tell you why what you believe in is wrong. And I'm going to reason with you. We also read that Paul preached Jesus. In verse 18 it says he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. The, The leaders in the Areopagus call what Paul was doing teaching in verse 19. So here's Paul boldly confronting the culture with truth. He reasoned, he preached, and he taught. Paul was living out an as-you-go type of Christianity. What do I mean by that? Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the famous Great Commission. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard preachers say this before. When it says, Go therefore, that really means as you go. As you're going. As life hits you. As you go to the marketplace. As you go here. As you go there. As you go. And that's the type of Christianity Paul's living in an as-you-go type of Christianity. And that's the type of Christianity that confronts our culture instead of conceding to it. So we see right off the bat that Paul has a desire to engage this culture he finds himself in. He doesn't try to just fit in. When I say we should be willing to go out into the culture, I'm not saying go fit in. Matter of fact, Paul doesn't fit in. Matter of fact, he gains a lot of attention pretty quickly here. He doesn't just fit in. It says in verse 18, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. The word converse there could also be translated argued. He was getting into arguments with the philosophies of the day, the philosophers of the day. And so he's going out into the community, he's speaking about Jesus, and he's not just trying to fit in. Paul could have fit in. If anybody could have fit in, it was Paul. Why? Because Paul was trained in the Hellenistic Greek culture. He was also trained in the highest forms of Judaism. He was an intellectual elite. Now, if I go try to converse with an intellectual elite, I'm probably out of my league. I'm not saying I shouldn't. I'm just saying, okay, I'm just an idiot, all right? But Paul wasn't. He could have put on the. The, the the tunic and everything else and just you know had the nice but paul stands out he's not just trying to fit in to the culture they call him a babbler it literally means seed picker one who picks up ideas like a chicken and spouts them out without fully understanding them in other words they were calling him an intellectual scrap collector kind of like cliff clavin do you remember the cliff clavin character lots of information but just pff, didn't make any sense that's what they were saying about paul they were saying that he was, a, he was a pseudo-intellectual, a poser. They were not impressed with Paul. and Instead, they mocked him. This, what they say about him here is a mocking word. Why were they mocking him? Well, it says here that he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because what? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You see, some people look at this text here in a lot of postmodern churches, and they, they look at this text, and they, they actually use this... Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34 text, to justify a watered-down version of the gospel. Paul's doing the exact opposite of that. Why is he gaining attention? Because he's preaching what? Jesus and the resurrection. He's preaching the cross. That, that Obviously, the cross is involved. If he's preaching the resurrection, he's preaching the cross too. He's proclaiming Christ crucified. And that's drawing him some attention. You see, if we say, okay, I'm going to confront the culture, I'm not going to concede to it, and I'm going to go out there, and then we try to water down our message so that it make it more easy for our world to digest, I'm not going to get to any of that cross stuff yet, then we're not following Paul's pattern here. You see, the way Paul was a change agent is he went out and just gave them the gospel truth. Here's the deal. Jesus died, was buried, rose again. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and following. I think Deemer read this passage in his sermon last week. It says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. We'll get to that next week about knowing the unknown God. Did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's how you change the culture. Don't go out there and just try to fit in and be cool. Be willing to be a gospel fool. Be willing to be a fool. You will not fit in if you teach Jesus and the resurrection. The gospel is the heart of an offensive mindset. A culture-engaging, culture-confronting lifestyle. The gospel is at the heart of that. Not the externals. This is where I struggle with separationism. As Christians, we have majored in the minors. We have majored in our ability to look externally holy. Yet we are so weak in our understanding and application of the gospel. And that frustrates me because the way you dress will not change the world. The gospel will. Please major in the majors, and if your saturated gospel lifestyle leads you to dress differently, do it. But don't expect your externals to change the world. It can't, it won't. It just creates a new type of Phariseeism. Be careful. Because we love our externals. We read our blogs and we digest our externals and we feel good about our externals. And some of our externals are expensive. Maybe we're going to adopt a kid. Why? If you're not adopting a child because of a heart that's founded in the gospel, stop! It's just a trend for rich Christians. Be careful. There's so many trends that make us feel holy. What makes you holy is the shed blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life every day in every arena of your life. That's where your holiness comes from. You are saved by grace alone. You are sustained by grace alone. That's where we are to be. And that's how we confront the culture. Back to our story. They take him, they bring him back to Areopagus saying, may we know... Verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, he's not being taken hold in a violent way that they're bringing him to court. They are just bringing him to the Areopagus so that he can explain a little bit more. This is an investigative calling of the Areopagus. The Areopagus is the court of Greece. The Areopagus had been in session since the 5th century B.C. This is a very important body that he's going before Matter of fact, did you know today that the Greek Supreme Court is still called the Areopagus? It's very interesting. So he's brought before, basically, the court to explain what he's teaching. Now Luke inserts a comment here about the Athenian culture. And we'll talk a little bit about this next week. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Our taste for something new is... What it does is it distract us from something ancient, the ancient of days. But we'll talk more about that next week. So, I want to real quickly, as kind of a conclusion here, is to get us to our second point. Because actually, when I get into the speech, I have seven points. So, those are next week. So, i got to get at least two points in today. Alright, point number two. We need the wisdom, we need wisdom to relate to our culture while still refuting it. This is the challenge. Okay, and I say this is a challenge because, like I said, this next sermon that Paul gives, and by the way, all the sermons in Acts are just condensed sermons. This isn't everything Paul said to the Areopagus. Just like everything Peter said at Pentecost isn't recorded by Luke. He just gives us the highlights. We get the Reader's Digest version. And that's the same thing here. But in this sermon here, a lot of people try to say, use this sermon as justification for a very seeker sensitive way of doing church and i don't think that's the case at all here Uh, i think i want to highlight a few things but um i do think that paul is strategic in what he does while at the same time refuting the culture of the day next week i'm going to give us six ways that paul refutes the greek culture and in doing so refutes our culture today six ways and then the seventh point will simply be that he calls them to repent you see, that's the big problem with seeker sensitive Christianity today. There's no call for repentance. Paul calls for repentance in this message. But he does make a strategic connection and he, and he makes a strategic quotation in this text. Verse 22 Paul standing midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Far from saying that he had found the unknown God, he uses the unknown God, the altar of the unknown God, as a stepping stone, as a bridge to begin to connect with the culture he's in while at the same time refuting it. Today, too many people try to peddle Christianity in the marketplace of religious ideas like it's just another religious product for you to try out, when in reality it's no such thing. In reality, it's the only truth, and it exposes all other religious philosophies as phonies, frauds, and demonic delusions. Christianity ultimately does not fit in to our culture. But Paul makes a strategic decision to point out something about their culture to give him an in, a foot in the door, if you will, to share the gospel. The second thing is he makes a strategic quotation. And we'll deal more with this next week. But he say, he quotes two poets when he says, Yet he is actually not far from each of us for, and it in your Bible says, quotes, In him we live and move and have our being. This is a quote from the Greek poet Epimenides from 600 B.C. And then he says, As some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. That's a quote from Eratus from the 3rd century B.C. Now a lot of people use these two quotes today to justify bringing secular culture into our church services. I think Deemer mentioned a couple weeks ago, playing Van Halen as your opening song. I've been to churches that lead off with jump. Everybody jump! All right. Or I've been to church planting conferences where we spend most of our time playing guitar hero instead of praying. And and you know what's used to justify that? If you confront, what are you doing? Paul, he quoted secular dudes so we can too really first of all i mean first of all this is not a church service first of all paul is in the midst of the areopagus defending the faith this is not a church service so that's the first distinction we should make okay secondly i mean paul is quoting a poet that's been dead 700 years and one that's been dead 400 years it's not like he's quoting the lady gaga and jay-z of their day all right these are ancient poets already So it's not like he's, wow, what's hip and cool? Oh, yeah, Epimenides, yeah, yeah. No! What's he doing? He's quoting these secular poets to demonstrate the universal condition of mankind, which is what I quoted earlier. Like Augustine said, all men have a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. And they're walking around Blindly trying to find God. And in their process of walking around blindly, trying to find God, they're making their little idols. That's the universal condition of mankind. And without the gospel, the eyes never open. So Paul's using the poets to say, look, your own poets, your own poets show what I'm saying is true. Paul doesn't quote them to be cool or hip with the intellectuals of his time instead he uses these quotes to show man's need for christ he actually quotes them in order to denounce their culture you see i'm afraid that many churches use secular music and movies today not born out of an attempt to reject the culture but out of a love for the culture i just love this stuff i gotta put it in church oh they're gonna love this now i run the risk of being a hypocrite on a day i show a funny commercial that had nothing to do with the bible but what was my purpose behind that? In other words, there's a balance here. There are ways to engage the culture, even use the culture, and redeem it for Christ's purposes without capitulating to it, without just trying to be cool. That's my problem with most of church day. I mean, I remember, as clear as day, right after Heather and I got married, I'm not going to tell you the church, and I remember the sermon. It was right after Forrest Gunk came out. And the pastor gets up, and the video clip comes up, and it's, life is like a box of chocolates. All right? And there's the box of chocolates clip. And then the pastor says, life is like a box of chocolates. And the whole time he preached Forrest Gump, and we never opened the Bible. And I remember as clear as day, sitting at the end of that service, and saying, I don't care that life is like a box of chocolates. I've got problems, and I need the Bible to help me out with them. I don't need Forrest Gump. I need Jesus Christ. There's always a balance here. And I think one of the balances we find is the difference between a worship service and engaging the culture. If you're out witnessing to someone and say, hey, did you hear that Lady Gaga song and you saw some line in there that, you know what, that may help them connect with a universal reality about the condition of mankind, go for it. I've never heard a Lady Gaga song. I'll just be honest with you. Okay, the name is Lady Gaga. Can't you come up with something else? Call yourself... Amy Smith or something, gosh. One preacher put it this way, what Paul's doing here is he's disinfecting and rebaptizing the poet's words for his own purpose. Let me just close with this, and I've gone longer than I planned, as usual. Uh, I read an article this week, and you guys may or may not like this guy. I don't care. Uh, Mark Driscoll, okay? I like Mark Driscoll. I don't like everything Mark does, but I like a lot of what they do. And yeah, I read an article this week about finding that balance between separatism and syncretism. And he said this, I like this, when he talks about how do we, how do we connect, engage with the culture. He says there's some things that we receive. We receive things that are culture, that are part of common grace to all men. Okay, that's why, for example, as he gives in his article... He said, I'm typing on a Mac and not looking for a Christian computer. I'm actually going to use a Mac. Even though Steve Jobs is not a Christian. And he gives some of his money to things I don't agree with. There are things in this culture we can receive and use for God's purposes. I find it funny. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I find it funny. I run the risk of, of insulting people sometimes. But I find it funny. Okay, I'm reading a website with a, with a specific ministry's manifesto. Mostly it's a manifesto of separ, separating. And I agree with almost everything that's in there, but there's some things that just seem too extreme for me. And then in one segment of this um, paragraph, it says, we reject all forms of modern marketing techniques. Yes! I read this on their website. Ross is a website, not a modern marketing technique. There are things we don't have to reject. Embrace that. Use the internet. Come on. Reject pornography. Use the internet. So there are things we can receive. There are things that we reject, like I just said. They have no redeeming value in culture. They have no redeeming value for a Christian that we shouldn't be at all involved in. For example, pornography. Pornography. And there's some things that we redeem. There are things in the culture that are not bad in and of themselves, but they can be used in a sinful manner. Therefore, we as the people of God need to redeem them. And I'll give you my opinion. At this time of the year, Christmas, there's a lot that Christians need to stop just rejecting outright and start redeeming. It belo- This holiday does not belong to the world. It belongs to us. Therefore, I'm going to redeem Santa Claus. He's as lost as can be, and I'm going to redeem him. And I'm going to share with my kids where this tradition came out of and where it went wrong. And let's redeem it. Let's redeem the culture. It doesn't belong to the This belongs to us. And redeem it for Christ's sake. So the things that are to be received, rejected, and redeemed. And I can't tell you what that's the balance you've got to find for your home i would be glad to give you my opinion. <laughs> to live outward focused, offense heavy, Christian lifestyles that can exist within the culture and are able to engage the culture without caving to it. To live in that way requires much wisdom and much boldness. So our two points are simply about boldness and wisdom. We need the boldness to confront our culture without conceding defeat. We need the wisdom to relate to it without, while still refuting it. Look at our jar again. It's begun to settle, hasn't it? Let this pagan world during this holiday that does not belong to the world, it belongs to us. Let it shake you up. Let it shake you up so that we can go and change this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I confess, I struggle, struggle almost on a daily basis with finding a balance Because this culture continues to degrade, continues to go downhill. And it seems every day there's a new issue, a new problem, a new new set of deviant behavior that's just embraced. It's just considered part of who we are. And God, I don't want to be a parent. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a dad, a father, a brother, a pastor who just ignores those things. I want it to stir me up. And by all means, Lord, I don't want to cave into those things and just begin to accept what the world says is right. So God, help me find a balance. And help every family in here find a balance, especially during the holiday season, during the Christmas season. Help us to find proper balance. Lord, get glory from our lives. Squeeze every bit of it you can out of us. We are glory grabbers. Oh, we're such glory grabbers. We love, Lord, to jump onto the latest trend and feel holy about ourselves and thus rob you of your glory. God, be the one who gets all the glory by allowing the gospel to transform us, not some external list of things that we've been able to abide by. So, God, be praised, be glorified, be magnified in Harbins and in each family that makes up the greater family of Harbins. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as you would as Mark leads us in just a song of response. Response time is for everybody. If you need to talk about uh, Jesus this morning with me or Redeemer or with somebody, a member of our church, you can come forward and do that. You can come forward, respond with your offerings, respond with your prayer requests. This is a time for all of us to respond.
1: ¡Ah!
2: quick things before you dismiss to, uh, to Bible study. Um, first of all, tonight um, there is uh, going to be a little reception in honor of, uh, where is he, right there, that man right there, Mark Barney Castle, who is graduating from college, which is a huge milestone, and um, <laughs> huge milestone, and uh, it, it, his, what's been great is, is that, I mean, he, lately I've been talking with Mark about opportunities that God has been giving him to share the gospel. During his college experience with some of his friends in college, so here's a guy who is in the in the culture. He's mixing up with the culture. He's not being like the world though, and he's sharing about the hope of Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, we're going to um, uh, formally congratulate Mark and encourage him tonight. Uh, that's going to be at the Doyle home from six to eight. You, you want to say, say something? A word? Yeah. yeah.
0: I just want to say that. Um, I want to say, come, <laughs> please come. Uh, in honor, of Mark. Yes, we have a wonderful, lots of food. We got cake. And don't let the weather deter you. We'd love to have as many people there just to really um, thank Mark for all he's done. And also just, you know, congratulate him on this milestone. So please uh, come if you can.
2: Six to eight at the Doyle House. And um, hey, next weekend is a big weekend for Harbin's. It's, it's kind of our Christmas outreach weekend. And so uh, next Saturday, we're going to be canvassing some neighborhoods around here. And uh, we've got these, these little baggies that we can hang them up on the doors of houses and in the bags, uh, uh, our Bibles, and also um, uh, gospel tracts, information about the gospel, and invitations to our Christmas Eve service as well. I'm very, very excited about this. And we want to hit 200 homes, and if we can get a ton of families out to do this, we can, we can take care of that pretty quick and pretty easy. You know, if we get 20 families, then all you need to do is hit like 10 homes, and then you're done. So that's going to be um, uh, next Saturday, and we're going to be meeting here at the church at 10 a.m., and then we will disperse. And then the following day, uh, evening, Sunday night, next Sunday night, we're going to go Christmas caroling. This is going to be a lot of fun. We did this last year, and uh, we just went from door to door, knocking on doors and singing uh, Christmas carols, singing about Jesus, also handing out information about the gospel as well and that's just a great way to spread Christmas cheer and to glorify Christ and and uh and and to spread his word as well and that's going to be next Sunday night and uh we'll we'll give you more information about that uh next Sunday uh, at the close of the service and there's a couple other things in the bulletin a lot of important things uh uh, Life Song for Orphans. There's some information about how you can partner with them. Also, the Georgia Baptist Children's Home, there's a Christmas wish list.
0: And it's in the back. We've got it's, it in, that's the right in the back the, that's at the right. welcome desk. It's the so Christmas wish list. check
2: that out as well. All kinds of opportunities for you to minister and get involved and plug in. And um, I'm just going to stop right there. No opening. No opening for Rewind. No opening for Rewind. You're dismissed a Bible study.